like to have you turn to Exodus, the 20th chapter, and we're going to talk this morning about the law, the uh, Ten Commandments. And I know what some of you are thinking, oh no, not the law, I knew it would finally come to that. I haven't been to church in six weeks and I come and someone lays the law on me. And uh, that's what the Bible is, it's just a bunch of uh, rules and regulations and laws that govern every aspect of our life. But if we're thinking that way, we're really not thinking straight. We're not thinking biblically. Because as we've seen, the law is not a precondition for our acceptance by God. The law is uh, preceded by the promise. God made a, an agreement with Abraham that he would bless him and make his name great. And through him, he would, he would bless the entire world. And Abraham simply believed it. And that's what made him the friend of God. That's what makes us the friend of God. It's uh, putting ourselves in God's hands. It's believing Him, trusting, relying in Him. It's not uh, keeping the law. As we saw, law and promise are not contrary principles. They're not opposing ideas. They work hand in hand. hand. Israel is gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they receive the law not to make them sons, but because they already are sons of God. They're described in chapter 19 as a holy people, God's special possession, his portable treasure. They were precious to God already. They were a kingdom of priests. It wasn't the law that was given on Mount Sinai that made them a special people. They already were. Hosea says, out of Israel, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So their sonship was real and actual. The law was given to show them how to act as sons. That's all. It didn't change their relationship to God one whit. They, they already belonged to him. The law was simply there to, to show them what it meant to be a son. I used to say to our older boys when they went out for a night, remember whose son you are. And by that I did not mean remember you're a preacher's kid. I wouldn't lay that burden on anyone. What I meant was, remember that you're a son of God. That's the idea. That's uh, what the law is for. It's to show us how to act as sons. Now, human law, as well as biblical law, sometimes gets uh, very complex. That's why we have lawyers, professionals who know their way through the law and can interpret it for us. Because our law, our human law, is, is a mixture of of good laws and bad laws, of profound laws and trivial, silly things. I was sitting at Brian Fisher's desk this past week and I saw a, a uh, an article from Parade Magazine with uh, a number of legal pearls. You may not know it, but in Pine Island, Minnesota, it's the law that you have to remove your hat when you see a cow. It's illegal to tickle a girl in Norton, Virginia. And in Natchez, Mississippi, it's against the law for elephants to drink beer. (laughs) And in Portland, Oregon, it's illegal to wear roller skates in a public lavatory. thought you'd appreciate those legal gems. But you see, that's that's the problem with human law. It's, um, It's a mixture of good and bad. But when we come to the Old Testament... The psalmist says God's law is pure. 
The Hebrew word that he uses means without alloy. It's not a mixture of good and bad. It's a perfect expression of the character of God. Now, I'm sure you've tried to read through these uh, these books of the law, the so-called Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as you do so, you're confronted with a blizzard of words and ideas, and we wonder how in the world can we make some sense out of all of this. Some of the laws even seem to be contradictory. And Is there any way to put it together so that it makes sense? Yes, there is. The law basically has three divisions. There is the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, that uh, brief, terse announcement of personal righteousness. That's the moral law. And the moral law is the center of everything. Everything else revolves around the Ten Commandments. And then there is the civil law, which is the application of the moral law, the application of the Ten Commandments to everyday life. Uh, as you read through the rest of chapter 20, for example, you'll see that the so-called covenant code that follows, the civil code, is simply an application of the laws prohibiting adultery and murder and theft and so forth to the practical life of the nation at that time. And then the third division of the law is the ceremonial law, and as the name implies, Israel derived her ceremonies and her feasts from that law. It... Uh, defines the office of the priest and what the priest did and describes the sacrifices and how they were how they were carried out. In general, the ceremonial law provides forgiveness for those who are unable to measure up to the lofty demands of, of the moral code. And of course, that's all of Israel. No one could measure up. So there had to be some provision for forgiveness. So the sacrificial system, which we'll talk about later, provides a way of escape when we fail when Israel failed. And then another aspect of the ceremonial law was the so-called laws of cleanliness. Cleanness. Not cleanliness, but cleanness. The laws that separated them from the rest of the world. The Jewish kosher system, kashrut system, comes from those laws of, of cleanness. Many of them dietary laws. Which were not laws of cleanliness or hygiene, but they were ways of showing Israel's distinctiveness. That's what set them apart from the rest of the world. Uh, for example, one of the uh, one of the laws that you find in the cashier system is uh, that they were not to boil a kid in its mother's milk. And we wonder, why in the world is that in there? Was that something that the Jewish, uh, the Israeli uh, Humane Society put in? Or is lamb boiled in its mother's milk hard to digest? I don't know, it doesn't sound too palatable to me, but but nevertheless, why is that law there? As you know, even today, Orthodox Jews don't mix dairy products and meat products. If you eat in a Jewish restaurant, an Orthodox Jewish restaurant, or food from an Orthodox kitchen, the dairy dishes and the meat dishes are separated on the basis of this law. Why? What What's the meaning of it all? Well, we know now that that was a fertility rite. There's a Canaanite poem that describes El walking the beaches. El was the high god, and he was out to seduce two women and uh, through the seduction produce other gods and goddesses, people the uh, populate the world of, of goddesses. And so he, he cooked a lamb, he boiled a lamb in its mother's milk as a way of becoming more potent, more fertile. It was a fertility rite. And that's why Israel was prohibited from doing this sort of thing. Because it wasn't boiling a lamb in its mother's milk 
milk that made you more fertile. It was God who opened the womb. It was God who who was responsible for procreation, you see? That they were to look to him and depend upon him rather than magic. It was a magic uh, act. That's all it was. And so those things were uh, proscribed for them. So the three elements of the law then are the moral law, that is the Ten Commandments, the civil law, which is the application of the moral law, and the ceremonial law, which in general provided laws of cleanness or holiness or distinctiveness and provided forgiveness when anyone failed to meet the high demands of the moral law. Now let's look at uh, chapter 20 of Exodus, and I'm not going to take time to read the entire chapter. We'll do that next week. But it begins with an introductory statement. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preamble to the Ten Commandments. The first commandment in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The second in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. The third in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, not take it up in a a light and frivolous, empty manner. The fourth, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The fifth, in verse 12, honor your father and mother. The sixth, verse 13, you shall not murder. The seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. The ninth, you shall not bear false witness. And the seventeenth, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And some of us are feeling guilty already. Now, you'll notice that there's really nothing new here. These are not new insights. He's just dusting off old foundations. The patriarchs knew these laws, most of them. Even the Sabbath law was uh, in effect long before Sinai. In Exodus 16, there's some instruction about gathering manna, when to gather it, when not to gather it, and the point is made that the seventh day is a Sabbath day, a day of rest. And even uh, the pagan nations knew these laws. You find them in their law codes, and even the Sabbath law was known in Babylon. On their calendars, there's a circle around the seventh day. It was a bad day for business, an unlucky day. So many of these laws are found throughout the ancient world. They, they are, I think, what Paul describes in the book of Romans as the law written on the heart. No one has to tell us that it's a bad thing to take your neighbor's wife or to take your neighbor's life or to take his property or to take his reputation. Those are things we just intuitively know. They're written on our hearts, on our consciences. So this is not something new, it's simply a codification, it's a, a written expression of what men have always known, it's a sense of, of what ought to be. Now there are a number of introductory things that I want to say about the Ten Commandments and we'll look at them in some detail next week. The first thing I want you to notice is that there are ten of them. Uh, Exodus 20 doesn't demand that we number them ten, there's no numbering system here. But in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we're told that there are ten words. Now, they're arranged in different ways. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you're used to one arrangement. The first two commandments are, are uh, one command, and the last commandment, you shall not covet, is divided into two. That goes all the way back to Augustine. Uh, Protestants have another numbering system based on the Reformation. 
They number them as they're more traditionally conceived. The Jews uh, took verse 2 and 3 together as the first command, a sort of theological statement, I am the Lord your God, I alone am the Lord your God, so negatively don't worship any other gods. It doesn't really matter how you arrange them. The thing that's important is that there are ten of them. And the question is, why? Why ten? Why not uh, twelve? One for every tribe. Or why not three? Since that seems to be the number of God. And since this is a pure expression of the character of God, why not three? Well, there may be some very profound theological reasons for ten. Numbers do seem to have some significance in the Old Testament. But for myself, I think... There are ten commandments because we have ten fingers on our hands. I'm serious. You think I'm kidding, but I'm serious. Israel was a very primitive people. They uh, had little formal education. Uh, Some could read and write. Certainly Moses could. He uh, had been through Egyptian schools, had been formally educated. But most of the Israelites were not. Educated. They were slaves, sheep herders. Uh, there is found out in the Sinai Peninsula on the walls of Egyptian turquoise mines graffiti, Semitic graffiti that they think was placed there by, by Israeli slaves during the time they were in Egypt so that they could read and write to some extent. But basically they were, they were untutored, very simple, very primitive people. Also, they didn't have much written material, and so almost everything was memorized, wrote, and they had memory devices that enabled them to recall these things. So I think there are ten commandments, because we have ten fingers. And uh, you could remember them by assigning one commandment to each finger. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, so forth. You could teach that to your aged grandmother. You could teach that to your children. You could even teach it to your uh, infants. This little piggy went, honor your mother and father all day long. <laughs> all sorts of things that you could do. And you might try teaching them that way to your children. There's another number that's significant to me. There were two tablets. We know that from Deuteronomy. Ten words on two tablets. And we raise the question, why two tablets? Uh, if you've seen, uh, if you've seen the Torah on the wall of synagogues, normally there are two large plaster or stone tablets with five commandments on each tablet. And I'm sure what uh, comes to your mind is that it took two tablets to contain the Ten Commandments. But that's not so. Actually, you could get uh, far more material than we have contained in in Exodus 20 on one tablet, or even on one side of one tablet. They could put an amazing amount of material on these tablets, even though they were quite small. We usually think of big things like this, made out of plaster or granite, but they were about the size of my note paper here, about four by six, generally small enough to be held in one hand, and like a little fat pillow. You can actually see the fingerprints on the sides where the scribes held them. And uh, they formed them out of wet clay. And then they had a little stylus that looked like a cuticle pencil. And they put their little wedge-shaped uh, characters. 
sometimes going from top to bottom, sometimes right to left, sometimes left to right, depending on how the spirit moved them. And uh, they'd start over here writing cuneiform characters. And by the way, they didn't use vowels. They just used consonants, so you can compress almost uh, an awful lot of material on on one uh, side of one of these little tablets. And they'd start over here, and they'd write all the way across. And when they got to the bottom, they would turn it over like this so that the reverse side was was upside down with reference to the uh, front side. And then they would start writing again. And some of these little tablets... Very small, like four by five tablets, when translated and typed out, would cover about three double-spaced typewritten pages. An enormous amount of material. So, the question again, why two tablets? Well, because one was a copy of the other. A carbon copy, if you please. In those days, um, they did everything in duplicate just as we do, at least uh, if they were doing legal things, writing contracts and treaties. Everything was done in duplicate. We do that today. Uh, the bank holds one copy of my mortgage, and I hold another copy in my safety deposit box, and if uh, they don't come through with their end of the deal, then I, I take my copy and I say, look, these were the original uh, arrangements. We agree. Or if I don't follow through, then they do the same thing for me. It's a guarantee that both properties... Both, both parties will do what they have agreed to do. And the same thing was done in the ancient world. They made copies of everything. And I think that's all this is. Two copies of the same law, but the interesting thing is that both of them were kept by God. If you went into a, a pagan sanctuary of that day, you would uh, find it looked very much like Israel's little tabernacle. There was an inner sanctuary. And in that inner sanctuary, there was an idol that they worship. If you went into Israel's inner sanctuary, you wouldn't find an idol. You'd find a little box, about three and a half feet by two and a quarter feet, much smaller, really, than the one you saw on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, <coughs> about the size of an army footlocker, if you can remember what those look like. And inside would be the two tablets of the law. No image, the two tablets of the law. God kept them both. Now, this is not gospel, but I'll tell you what I think. You don't have to believe this. Everyone is entitled to at least one crazy idea in his life. I think God is saying, in effect, we both have obligations in this arrangement. I have obligations. I will be your God. I'm the one who delivered you from Israel. I will continue to give you the sort of freedom that you're intended to have as God's people. I'll forgive you when you sin. I'll give you the resources for obedience to these high and lofty, incredibly uh, difficult uh, requirements. I'll do all of that for you. And your obligation is to respond in obedience to me. But, in effect, I'm going to keep both copies of the contract in my own heart. It'll be my responsibility to see to, that both, see to it that both of us follow through. I think the two copies are simply another indication of the grace of God. Sure, these demands are lofty, impossible, but it's God who's at work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We say, that's grace, that's the New Testament. I say, that's the message all the way through from the very beginning. It all depends upon God. All we have to do is put ourselves in his hands.
Now, I commented before that the that what you would find in the sanctuary was a was a little box with the law. And for me, the significance of that fact is that God's character is revealed not in an image, but in words. When God spoke to us, he didn't hum, he didn't whistle, although the book of Isaiah says that anthropomorphically speaking, he did whistle. He didn't use body language. He spoke to us in words, propositional statements. That is, verbal language that's either right or wrong, true or false, something that could be understood, something that could be clearly understood. He had a passion to communicate. That's the idea. Now, there was one time in history when God spoke to us through an image in both the books of Colossians and Hebrews and others of the apostles refer to the fact that Jesus is the exact image of God. But that occurred only one time in, in history, during the years of his incarnation. And today we don't look at an image, we don't see the Lord walking among us, we don't have that standard of righteousness, we have the Word. So if we want to know what God is like, we look at the Word. And interestingly enough, that's what the Ten Commandments are called. They're not called Ten Commandments in Scripture, they're called the Ten Words. Because he communicated to us in speech that we all can understand. He used conventional forms of speech. He's not playing games with us. I think some of us think that God's will is so filmy and so vaporous and so hard to detect that we may miss it because we happen to be distracted for a moment. And we will ruin our life because we didn't get it straight. But what we need to understand is that God wants to communicate his will. Not something hard to find. Ninety-nine and ninety-nine one-hundredths percent of God's will is already revealed. It's right here in the scriptures. It's all we need. We don't need to get more truth from visions and dreams, moods, whims, feelings. It comes from the Word. As John Fisher puts it, read the Bible. The words inside are true and reliable. That's where we get our information about God. And what I see all the way through is that God is so intent upon communicating to us that he gets right down on our level. He, in one sense, accommodates himself to our modes of speech and talks to us just as we talk to one another so we can clearly understand, uh, can clearly understand and discern God's will. Now, I want to say one other thing. It, the... The picture that most of us have of the giving of the law is Moses up on the mountain and the people down at the bottom of the mountain. And God communicates to Moses and he writes it down on the tablets and then he comes to the bottom of, of Mount Sinai and he, as the mediator of the law, gives it to the people. But if you read through this account carefully, I don't have time to do it this morning, but if you read through chapters 19 and 20 and you look at Deuteronomy 5, the parallel passage, it's very clear that God was down among them. He was not up on the hill. When he gave the Ten Commandments, he was, he was with it, he was, he was right there in their midst. As a matter of fact, Moses, in referring back to this event in Deuteronomy 5, said, God spoke to you face to face. That's simply another indication to me of God's passion to communicate truth to us. He is not going to leave us in the dark. He did not leave Israel in the dark concerning his will. He got down there where they were. He spoke to them in words. That they, that they understood. 
Now let's look first at the preamble to the law. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am, therefore you shall. The point that the Lord is making here is that he is the standard for righteousness. He and he alone is the standard. I am, therefore you shall be. Now we're living in an era in history when morality is is very fuzzy. The lines between right and wrong are not clearly drawn. It's very difficult to know what's right and what's wrong. What is the standard for righteousness? The whole thing gets very uh, very relative. Uh, who do we get our clues from? From Ayn Rand? Or from 51% of uh, society? Or my next-born neighbor? Or my peers? Whoever they may be? How do I find out what I should do? It's an open question. And the result of it has been a, a great deal of moral... Uh, relativism. No, things change. Standards change. No one knows. I read some months ago of a man who used to call the telephone operator in his town. It was a very small town, only one operator, and he used to call her every day at 11.45 and ask her what time it was. And she would say it's 11.45. And that went on for weeks. Until finally her curiosity got the best of her and she said, tell me, why do you call me every day at 11.45 to tell me what time it is? Or ask me what time it is. And he said, because I'm the guy that rings the church bell at 12. And she gasped and she said, you know, for the last year I've been setting my watch by the church bell. (laughs) Now that's the sort of thing that's happening. Who knows what's right? And without a standard... There's simply no way to evaluate our actions. As Francis Schaeffer says, whether you help a little lady across little lady across the street or push her in front of a bus, it really makes no difference if there's no standard, you see. Now the standard is righteousness. God's righteousness. God's character. As a matter of fact, righteousness uh, simply means something in accord with a right standard. Uh, originally it was not even a theological term. It's used, for example, in the book of Isaiah for a live oak tree. A live oak tree is called a righteous tree. You know why? Because it always accords with the standard of treeness. It always has leaves. And therefore it always looks like a tree. It's always right. So it was called a righteous tree. And when people are in accord with God, when they're lined up with God, in his standard, then they are righteous. And that's an inflexible, immovable, immutable, unchangeable standard. It never changes. He is the God, James says, in whom there is no shadow of turning. He never varies. He's always the same. There is that absolute standard. Uh, in the uh, in Sports Illustrated this past week, there was a report on the... Uh, National Indoor Track and Field Championship in New York City. And uh, Veronica Bell, the woman long jumper, set a new world record of 21 feet, 11 inches. That was astonishing. That's an incredible leap. 
Her best prior to the uh, to those games was 19 feet 11 inches. In other words, she jumped two feet beyond her her best jump, and she shattered the world record by about 18 inches. It was incredible. Until they started looking at the tape, and they realized that they had used a Lufkin tape that was calibrated in millimeters instead of centimeters, and they had actually given her two feet in her jump. She only jumped 19 feet 11 inches. I started thinking about that. Now, if I were Veronica, I'd get hold of that tape, and I would take it with me wherever I went. And I would be a world-class jumper. It didn't make any difference what my, what my jump was. And that's the way a lot of people live their lives. They look for a standard, a flexible standard, a changeable standard that they can measure their life, be, uh, life by, when the fact is the, the only standard is God. And that standard never changes. And that's his point here. I am God, therefore you shall be. That's the order of things all the way through these commands. Now, we just have time to look at the first command in verse 2. Verse 3, excuse me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That phrase, no other gods before me, may trouble you because it sounds like God is admitting that there are other gods in the world and he's simply one among many and you're to worship me within a multiplicity of gods. And it is possible that he could be accommodating himself to the, the ignorance and the primitive state of Israel's thinking. They've been raised in an idolatrous environment and it could be that he's saying, out of all these other gods that you think are gods, I am the one god that you're to worship. That's, that's possible. And if that's so, then... A, a pure statement of monotheism comes later in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. That's possible. But I don't think so. I think what he's talking about by his, the reference to other gods is a reference to idols. And I think he makes that clear a bit later in chapter 20, verse 23, when he says, You shall not make other gods beside me, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. In other words, you're, you're not to make any representation of a God that you worship. Those are the other gods that he's talking about. He's not admitting to the presence of other gods in the world. There are no other gods in the world. He's simply saying, I am God. I'm the only God there is. Worship me. And as he goes on to say, I'm a jealous God. That bothers a lot of people. It sounds petty. Here's a God we have to pander to. He doesn't like it if we have other affections. Our affections are alienated, gets upset. I've been corresponding with a young woman here in Boise for the past couple of weeks who responded to my column once. She's an atheist, and we've had some lively communication over the weeks. And uh, just this past week, she sent me a copy of uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare's newsletter, the American Atheist Radio Series. And interestingly enough, it's on the first commandment. And uh, she was talking about the uh, describing the Exodus, which she says was accomplished by a little pipsqueak Jew god, all in lowercase letters, whom surely even Hitler could have learned from, talking about the atrocities that accompanied the Exodus. She describes the first commandment as sick Jewish tribal thought, She says of God that he was jealous and vindictive, he's petty and mean. And then, in conclusion, she says the first commandment is less than subhuman. 
And the demonstrated God is despicable. In order to worship one malevolent God, in order of which we should be ashamed. And the thing that struck me is that just under the article is a series of classified ads which read as follows. Male, age 41, widower, buried interest, looking for intelligent, warm, slender lady. White, male, mature, atheist, struggling from Christianity, desires, female companion, bright, imaginative, and morally variable. Presumably that's more uh, human. That's a more human way of looking at, uh, at women. And here's another indication that when we cut ourselves loose from the sheet anchor of the character of God, then we really have no place to go. But her concern is that he's a jealous God. He's petty, mean, vindictive. But is that really the case? Is that, is that the point that he's making? You see, there's both a good and a bad jealousy. Uh, jealousy in itself is not wrong. Jealousy in certain situations can be appropriate. If, for example, someone tries to alienate Carolyn's affections from me, I should be jealous because she's my wife. I have every right to be jealous and to be angry. She's mine. She doesn't belong to anybody else, and I'm hers. No one else has a right to her. Now, if she weren't my wife, I would have no right to be jealous, but she is. Some years ago, I had a man come into my office and tell me that the night before he'd walked out into his backyard or looked through the window in his backyard and he saw his, his wife embracing a neighbor in the dark. And uh, he didn't say anything to her. He came to me the next day and he said he didn't know what the Christian thing to do. He didn't know what was the Christian thing to do because he loved his wife and he wanted to have the best. And if it was to be in someone else's arms, and that he felt that's what she ought to have. And, and she, he was uncertain about his next move, and he said, what would you do? I said, well, I'd go out in the garage, and I would cut me a two-by-four about that long. <laughs> and I'd go next door and rap on my neighbor's door and say, if you ever lay a finger on my wife again, I will place a forked nut right on the top of your head. Don't you ever touch her again. And he said, that's not Christian. I said, baloney, that's not Christian. That's the most Christian thing I can think of. That's my wife. And incidentally, you'll make her desperately happy if you do it too. She would love to have you do that. See, that's the way God is. We belong to him. He's ours. He made us. Furthermore, he knows that we are only happy when we respond in love to him. As Augustine put it, Oh God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And he knows that that we are miserable. And we make everybody else in life miserable when God is not our first love. And so when we're unfaithful, he goes after us. Makes him jealous. Gets upset. Makes him angry. It's not right. And that's a godly jealousy. He is a jealous God. But it's for our sake. He knows what will satisfy us. Now we're out of time. Let me say this. The New Testament is the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. First uh, Peter 1.20 says that no scripture is of any private interpretation. That is, it's not up to, or excuse me, Second Peter 1.20, it's not up to us to interpret the Old Testament. The apostles did that for us. Now, we don't live in the Old Testament era, and we can't take the Ten Commandments and apply them as they exist to us. 
We're going to talk more about this next week. But let me just leave you with this one thought. We are New Testament people. We're in the church. We have to see the Old Testament as, it, as it's interpreted for us by the, by the Lord in the apostles. Sometimes they will, they will change somewhat the meaning of the Ten Commandments, as we'll see next week. The Sabbath ordinance is, is an illustration of that sort of thing. They spiritualize it, change the meaning of it. Other, other times the apostles will modify the Ten Commandments in some, in some way. But uh, the apostles do not change or modify the first two commandments in any way whatever. The first prescribes the worship of one God, monolatry. The second proscribes idolatry. And the New Testament uh, speaks about both of those issues in exactly the same terms that you have in the, in the Old Testament. Now turn with me to 1 John. Chapter 5. I'm sorry, I'm running over, but give me about two more minutes, will you? Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. The real article. That's been John's concern all the way through. To give us the truth about Jesus. And we are in Him who is true. In God. And in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That is, that's the only one there is. God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the genuine article over against every other spurious God. This is the real thing. The true God. Worship Him. That's the idea. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Exactly the same idea. He prescribes a worship of one God, proscribes Idolatry. Now, you and I are being treated today, particularly by Madison Avenue, to um, uh, the idea of alternate authorities, alternate absolutes, something that you drive in, something that you wear, something that you spray on. If, if, if you listen to what Madison Avenue is telling us, these are the things that will, that will satisfy us. They will give meaning to life. They'll fulfill you. A high score at Pac-Man or whatever it is. These are alternates to the worship of one God. There's only one God that can satisfy. Nothing else can satisfy. Only God. I'm convinced that all of the unhappiness in the world, every bit of misery in the world, is because we have violated one of these Ten Commandments, and specifically the first one. Jesus said, if the eye is single, then the whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is evil, and the word means dual, forked, if we're looking at one thing and, and at God, and we're trying to divide our interests, and we're trying to serve two masters, Jesus said, how great is that darkness. I'm really convinced that most of our misery and unhappiness is because we have divided hearts. We do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. And we need to take heed to these words. Jesus is the true God. He's the only God. We need to listen to him and obey him and do what he tells us to do. And we need to beware of idols. We get so easily sucked into thinking that something else will satisfy us. But it won't.
We need to pray as the psalmist prayed, Lord, unite our hearts to serve one thing, to serve God with all of our hearts. Let's stand together and pray. Father, how easily we fall into the trap of thinking that we see, that the people we see portrayed in magazines and in ads, the beautiful people that that are portrayed there uh, as examples of, of goodness and satisfaction and fulfillment are to be believed. How far from the truth that is, Father. Help us to see that there is only one source of joy, fulfillment in this world. And that's your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us one heart to pursue Him, to believe Him, to trust Him, to do what He's called us to do, and to know that underneath are the everlasting arms. There is forgiveness when we fail. And there's power to, to fulfill these lofty demands. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.